For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. Thank you, Corey. God's word. It was the night of June 17th in 2015, and the national news was ruled by a story of a shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. A 21-year-old man walked into a church. He was welcomed by the church members. He sat down and attended their Bible study, and he proceeded to murder nine of them. This horrific story became known as the Charleston Church Shooting. Now, as absolutely awful as shootings are, most times news outlets, they will report on them and then quickly move on to something else, especially in our day and age. The masses want more stories, so typically they keep moving. But this story had a particular, particularly interesting part of it that the news just kept going with this story, which was surprising. Two short days later, many of the family members of those who died in the shooting gathered together for a hearing, and as many gave their statements, they spoke to Dylan Roof, not from their anger, but from a place of forgiveness and a place of reconciliation. While Dylan remained emotionless, these followers of Jesus Christ exercised the ministry of reconciliation. I forgive you, Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said at the hearing, her voice cracking with emotion. She said, you took something very precious from me, and I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. The world took interest in this story. It kept coming up over and over again because of this radical countercultural ministry of reconciliation that these Christians offered to this troubled young man. What do we mean when we say reconciliation or reconcile? Well, Webster's defines it as this, to restore friendship or harmony, to reconcile differences, to settle differences. In a biblical sense, to reconcile means to restore the right relationship or standard or to make peace where there was formerly enmity. To restore a right relationship or standard or to make peace where formerly there was enmity. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is a reconciler. And Jesus Christ came to reconcile sinful men and women to a holy, perfect God. Jesus Christ, the reconciler. 
So, as you know, Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians in AD 62 while he was in prison in Rome, written about the same time as Ephesians and Philemon. If you read all three of these together as we're going through this, you'll see the connections. This letter, maybe more than others, is probably the most Christ-centered of all Paul's letters. The reason he wrote was he was combating a heresy in the Colossian church where Jewish legalism and Greek mysticism was permeating the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Rather than holding to, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ as having faith in what Christ did on the cross, faith in Christ alone, not by works, they started believing this false blend of teaching that would say that faith in Christ isn't enough. You also have to observe the Sabbath and the dietary laws, and you have to be circumcised, and you have to do the Jewish law. Also, there was another group of false teachers in the church that kept teaching people saying that Jesus really isn't God. He's very important, but he's just sort of an angel, sort of a spiritual being. And the way that you get right with God is by taking all these little bits and pieces of information that keep coming from different sources, and then maybe some very special select elite people will be able to put the picture together and therefore then become right with God. And so this is why Paul is writing to this church. He's trying to set them straight and protect them from getting off course. And so he does that by pointing them to Jesus. He points them to the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Christ alone is sufficient. You don't need works. He's supreme. He's God in the flesh. He's not an angel. He's not a created being. He created all things. Last week, you remember, all things were created by him, through him, for him. And everything holds together in him. The breath you're breathing, the fact that your life is holding together, that your physical body's holding together right now, it's because Christ is holding you together. Everything in the universe. The sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. This week, it goes on and Paul looks at the supremacy of Christ in his ministry of reconciliation. And I will show you on the outline how this works together. I've divided our message into four parts. The ministry of reconciliation of Christ. Reconciliation, number one, is provided by his death on the cross. Number two, reconciliation is needed because of separation from God. Number three, reconciliation is the means of our righteous standing. And number four, reconciliation is what we continue to hope in and share with others. You're going to see those four things in the message today. If I was to boil this down into one point, I would tell you this now. that Because Jesus' death on the cross reconciles us to the Father, we must continue in this hope and preach it to others. So, reconciliation number one is provided by Jesus' death on the cross. Look at verse 19. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Reconciliation comes from God who is Christ. Notice what it says there. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. What this means is that the fullness of God, absolutely all of God, dwells permanently in Christ. The false teachers were saying in this church that 
Jesus is not God, that the fullness of God really is only understandable from all these different sources of information. Paul says, no, that's inaccurate. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. The word dwell in the Greek context, uh, the Greek text, it means to permanently dwell. God has always been in Christ fully. He's saying Jesus is God. Now, real quick, a question. How does this passage speak to people that say Jesus is not God? You know, the answer is right there in front of you. It's obvious that it, he says the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, Reconciliation in a biblical sense. Notice what it says there. The fullness dwelled in Christ. Christ is God. And by him, he's going to reconcile all things to himself. First of all, let's focus on what he means by all things. In the book of Romans, we learn that even the creation has been cursed, has been affected by the sin in the Garden of Eden. And you say, well, I remember that. I've read Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, God came and he pronounced a curse on Satan. He pronounced a curse on men and women. And he pronounced a curse on the land. He says, curse to this land. You'll work it and it'll be hard to get a living out of it. You're going to get, uh, you're going to sweat and it's going to, there's going to be thorns and thistles. Even the creation has been subjected to futility is the way Paul puts it in Romans. And it's groaning for redemption. And God is working redemption in the land. It started, this process of renewal started at the cross. And part of this where he says he's reconciling all things to himself, he's restoring the relationship of humans. Everything in the unseen realm here, mostly everything in the unseen realm, I'll tell you what I mean in a second. And even the creation are all being reconciled. They're all being brought back into that right relationship with God. Now, where it says all things, it's important that you understand that where he says all things on earth here, he doesn't say all things under the earth. Now, this is extremely important. Philippians 2, chapter 10 says this. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. There is a day when every single thing will bow to Jesus. Those that have surrendered to him will bow to him willingly. Those that never surrendered to him are held under the earth and will be essentially forced to bow to God's power and to who he is. That's coming. But when this passage says that all things will be reconciled, will be set right with God, it's not talking about those things that are under the earth. We read in the book of Revelation that there's a destiny coming for demons, fallen angels, and for people that have rejected Christ. And it's not that they will be reconciled to him. And so that's very important because the proponents of universalism use this passage. It's important to point out to them that when he says all things on earth, he doesn't say all things under the earth. So you need to fill in the blanks by reading Revelation there to understand he's not talking about universalism. In other words, everybody's not going to be saved. It's those that surrender to Jesus Christ that will be saved. Those that trust him, that welcome <coughs> His redemption, his redeeming work, those who welcome that will go to heaven. Now, it's important to notice these words where it says, to himself. God is not reconciled to man, but man is reconciled to God. Can you understand the difference between those two things? 
If we were saying God was to be reconciled to man, we would be saying that there's something wrong with God, that he had to get it right to get in alignment with man. It's kind of like this. If my guitar's out of tune here and I get the tuner, I don't, if my guitar's out of tune, I don't say that there's something wrong with the tuner and the tuner needs to change. The guitar needs to get in tune. And that's what it means when all things are going to be reconciled to him. He's like the tuner in the sense that he's perfect. We're the ones that need to be reconciled to him. Very important. By making peace, this is how this happens. Notice it goes on there. It says, having made peace. We, by nature and by birth, are born into sin, which makes it to where we are not at peace with God. You might say, what do you mean that Christ on the cross was making peace? He was reconciling sinful men and women to a holy God. There has been a long-standing fight between men and women and God that began on the day that our first parents, Adam and Eve, listened to the voice of the serpent rather than obeying the words of God. You guys are familiar with this in Genesis 3. And there's been a long-standing fight between God and man ever since then, between God and men and women. Because of sin, humans and the creation are in a fight with God. This is not how many people outside of Christ understand things, is it? Have you noticed that a lot of people outside of Christ, maybe some that you've tried to share Jesus with, they come, they come from this kind of like as it's like sort of a neutral thing. They, they think, you know, if somebody's rejecting Christ today, they might say something like, well, you know, it's okay for you, but you know, for me. And they assume that they're in sort of a neutral standpoint. The Bible's clear that there is no neutral standpoint. Jesus says you're with him or you're against him. And that's because everything that's born is born in sin and everything because of sin that enmity with God. It's at war with God. There's a fight between God and everything that's been touched by sin. It's pretty interesting where people would continue on in their life and think, I'm in this neutral sort of point. Well, the Bible would tell you otherwise. You're actually not at peace with God. This reconciliation comes through the blood of his cross. Jesus makes peace between us and God through the blood of his cross. Now, the fact that Jesus died in a human flesh body on a cross made him qualified. He had to be fully human in order to die to pay the payment for sin. That's what Paul's getting at. He's using these words, the blood of his cross. These people speaking about Jesus in the church that would say, oh, he's an angel, he's, he's not God, he's all this. Paul is saying, no, he's got a literal physical body, and that literal physical body died on the cross, and what he did on that cross is how people are saved. I want you to understand, too, where it says the blood of his cross, it doesn't mean that, like, blood in a literal sense. It doesn't mean, like, somebody's got, like, a vial of Jesus' blood somewhere, and he's going around and sprinkling people, and they have to physically touch the blood. It doesn't mean that. It means that the act of what he did on the cross... The payment and the penalty for sin was laid upon him and his blood was shed to pay that penalty for us. You know, if you're in trouble with the law and you've got a huge fine and somebody paid that fine for you, you can essentially think of Jesus as paying this massive fine that you have on the cross. And that's what he did. He made peace with sinful man and a holy God 
through his act on the cross. Sin made us enemies. The cross has brought us peace. Sin created a great gulf between us and God. The cross has bridged it. Sin broke the relationship. The cross has restored it, says John Stott in his commentary. Maybe you've seen the picture where there'd be somebody standing like on a cross, you know, like, like they're doing an illustration. They'll make a cross with their arms. And somebody, you know, you can do this with kids, right? On the one side, you've got, you know, the kid dressed up as God. And it's like, well, you're not trying to be blasphemous. It's just, a, it's just an illustration, little kids, like a play. And you've got somebody representing God over here. And then over on this other side, you've got somebody representing man. And they're sinful. And then somebody comes in the middle and he puts his hand or, you know, puts his hand on both of them, right? And makes a bridge, reconciles these two things together, right? That's the picture. Blood in the scriptures in the Old Testament, you know, animals were sacrificed and their blood was brought as a temporary covering for the sins of the people. Now, in the New Testament, the blood uh, of Christ brings a permanent covering, not, not a covering, but atonement in the Old Testament means a covering, but atonement, what Christ did on the cross, means at one Christ's blood pays the penalty of sin once and for all to make us at one with God. It's incredibly powerful. Jesus says that his blood is the blood of the new covenant. You know, sometimes people will ask you, what's up with all the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament? You know, especially people that just really don't know much about the Bible and especially people that are into like PETA and animals, you know, and they'll say stuff like, I, there's no way I can get with that Christianity stuff because God's like killing animals all the time he has. And uh, the thing is, is why, why was all that there? Well, that blood was shed. Jesus, you know, God, God tells people that the life is in the blood. And so the blood had to be shed for the sins of the people. And then it was put in the altar in a special ritual. And it was done as a temporary covering. God was seeing that there had been a payment made for the sin that the people had committed, and it was temporary, right? Now, I don't understand the full dynamics of why blood. I mean, there's a lot of scholars that speculate on this. I do know the Bible says that the life is in the blood. It says that in the book of Leviticus. It says that the life is in the blood, and it also says in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And you can read a whole bunch of scholars that speculate why exactly blood, but I have to confess to you it's a mystery that I plan to ask God, you know, when I get there, but I don't understand the full dynamic of it, but I know what the Bible uh, says about it. You can think about it like this, though. When, there's, when somebody has hurt another person, there's always a sacrifice required in reconciling with them. You know, like these people that lost nine of their loved ones to a heinous murder. There was a sacrifice involved for them to come and try to offer reconciliation to this guy, Right? Think about this. Every time somebody's offended, there has to be some sort of sacrifice for reconciliation to happen, right? I either need to just take it on me. If you hurt me, I just need to take it myself and just say, look, I'm just going to bury it, whatever it's over with. There's a sacrifice made. Or I can persist on it and say, you owe me. You know, why don't you make restitution? If you do this, then I'll forgive you, right? There always has to be some sort of exchange and reconciliation. There has to be some sort of sacrifice and forgiveness. To my understanding, that's what God's telling us. He's saying sin is such an offense against him that there has to be a sacrifice made to make things right, right? And that's what Jesus is, is he's that sacrifice. His blood on the cross is what makes those things right. It atones us to God. It restores the relationship. 
Reconciliation to God's provided through Jesus' death on the cross. Now going further, why is it necessary? You might say, why is the cross necessary? And you, verse 21, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Why do we need to be reconciled? It says right there, because we were once alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works. Alienated means by birth, the way your brain works, you're totally a stranger to the way things God, you know, the way God thinks. By birth, we don't think like God thinks. Some of you know that if you've come to Christianity in your adult life and you say, man, I cannot believe how I used to think before I came to Christ and he gave me the mind of Christ, you know, like I think completely differently than the way I used to think like all through my 20s and, you know, my whole life. This is what Paul is saying is you need to be reconciled to God because your mind is so far from what God is all about. And he goes on to even say further, you were enemies. Or another translation says you were hostile towards God. And all you got to do is to start a YouTube channel and look at the comments that come to see that people are certainly hostile to God. And some of you might have been. Some of you might have been hostile to Christians before you got saved. Some of you might be hostile towards this whole thing even sitting here right there. You know, today you're, you're still like wrestling with God and you're hostile towards what's going on here, you know, maybe. Because the carnal mind, the Bible says, is enmity with God. If you're not saved, the way you think is an offense to God. If you're not saved here today, if you have not received the mind of Christ through salvation, the way you think is offensive to God. It's, host, it's hostile to him. Now, he goes on at the end here and he says, by wicked works. And I want to let you know that I think that's an unfortunate translation, okay? Other translations, here's why. It makes it seem like we are offensive to God because of the works that we do. That's not how the Greek would have it. It's more like this. Because of sin, we do these wicked works. The, the works don't make us wicked. The sin leads us to do wicked works. When your brain is carnal, when your mind is carnal and your heart is carnal because you've never been saved, you do works that are offensive to God. And that's, that's what he's getting at here. Now, it makes me think of this song that I used to sing back when I used to play in bars and nightclubs and stuff like that. I used to sing this song where the guy was singing and he goes, I ain't got no quarrels with God. And if you've ever heard that song, some of you have heard it. But the line in the song, the guy says he's, he ain't got no quarrels with God, right? And he's, uh, you know, he died of a heroin overdose and all these other things. And, uh, you know, some of his songs were completely blasphemous, but he thinks he ain't got no quarrels with God. And it makes you think about how people assume that whether they are offensive to God or not has to do with their choice. Like, oh, I've decided that I don't have any problems with that whole Christianity thing. That really doesn't matter. The problem is, see, is if, if you haven't become a new creation and received the new heart and the new mind of Christ, you're offensive to God. You're loved by God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die. But if you have not received Jesus Christ, you're offensive to God. He's mad at you. He's mad at, he's at war with you. This is why Christ needed to make peace by the blood of his cross because he, is at war. he doesn't want to be at war with people. So he sends Christ to make reconciliation. The other day I was watching this video on YouTube. YouTube. And uh, this, this gal, she's probably like 16, 17 or something, she was going around and she was interviewing her classmates 
in a mall. And uh, she was asking them, she's like, what do, you, what do you guys think about Christianity? And she made a little documentary, and it was like probably 20 minutes long on YouTube. And she would keep going up to these people. And um, man, so many of them. What was really unfortunate was the ones that cl claimed to be Christian. Like, you know, I don't know if it was just her video editing or whatever, but a lot of them were like, you know, one kid's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And he was like, yeah, what does that mean? And he's like, uh, God died for my sin, or Jesus did, or, or one of them did. I can't remember who died for my sin. It was... And it was like, okay, uh, fair enough. But a lot of them were saying things like, oh, Christianity's okay for those people. You know, so long as you don't hurt yourself, you know, or hurt anybody else with your beliefs, then, you know, I don't have a problem with it whatsoever. And they're coming from this place of being like they think they're neutral, right? They think that everything's okay and they can pick and choose what they do with Jesus. The bottom line is, and hear me carefully, what people decide to do with Jesus uh, determines whether they're going to heaven or hell. And you're not neutral. You either receive him or you reject him. You might say, listen, I was not a Christian my whole life, but I was never God's enemy. I was never hostile towards him. Let me see if I can help you with another illustration. This is something that came to me last night. I thought about this. like, You know, the Bible likens uh, our relationship with Christ to a marriage, right, a lot. Think about if you're in a marriage and you take a neutral standpoint in your marriage, right? You say, yeah, I'm married, but I'm not going to be engaged in being married. I'm just, sure, I'm married technically, but I'm going to be neutral towards the whole thing. Just the nature of the marriage covenant, that would be incredibly offensive. How much more... Offensive is it to a God who created everyone to be in a relationship with him? Then to assume that you can take a negative or a neutral standpoint, it's like, no, I, I ain't got no quarrel with God, man. I don't got any problem with Christians. To each their own, they can do what they want. You're taking a neutral standpoint in the relationship that you've been created to have. There is no neutral. To be nonchalant about Jesus and to reject him and say, I don't have any problem with that stuff, is to be incredibly offensive because the breath that you're breathing is given to you to be in a relationship with your creator. And people don't get it. And they think they're so intellectual. And they think they're so, you know, I'm so accepting and so tolerant of everything. All these Christians, they could do what they want. Listen, you are rejecting Christ if you think you're in a neutral standpoint and you're at enmity with God and you're at war with God, right? He is not at peace with you if you have rejected him. And that's why when people ask me to pray for their unsaved relatives or things like that, they say, oh, my friend's in the hospital. Will you pray for him? I say, is he saved? Because, you know, I don't expect God to answer prayers for anybody that is rejecting him, right? The first prayer that he needs, to, you know, we need to be praying for you to get saved. You need to surrender to this creator that you are not at peace with. That's the first thing, you know? That's where it starts, because you're at enmity with God. He loves you, but you're at enmity with him if you're rejecting him. And I tell that to you guys today. To, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to equip you with these things to go share Christ with a Christ-rejecting world. I assume that everybody here, the reason you're here is because you've received Jesus Christ. And so you might be saying, brother, you're preaching to the choir here. And, and so forgive me, I'll move it to the next point if that's the case. Reconciliation is the means of our righteous standing, number three, verse uh, 21, at the end of verse 21, 
It says, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. There again, Paul's making this language. Notice he said in the body of his flesh. That would be a, you know, an attack at this Gnostic heresy that Jesus was an emanation, that he was an angel. He's saying, no, through the body of his flesh, he made this. Now, a couple of important things here. First of all, he says has, past tense. What Christ did at the cross was a past tense thing, although it may not be applied to somebody's life today. What's been done has been done 2,000 some years ago at the cross, but it has to be applied to somebody's life here today. Christ has done it, but you need to receive the benefits of it. Your friends, your loved ones, they need to receive the benefits of this. Says he has reconciled. It's really uh, stood out to me this week that he does the reconciling. God has called people to know him and to be reconciled to him. This was a real powerful word to me this week because I sometimes think that I have more of a place in people being reconciled than I really do. You know what I mean? And this has been an incredible frustration for me as a minister is trying to do some things in my own strength. You know, thinking by getting excited that I can produce fruit, you know, or thinking that, you know what I mean? What it might be. But this is such a reminder that he has reconciled. God is in the business of changing lives. And he's been doing it. And he continues to do it. You know, as a Christian, you know, we're called to come alongside and to be used by him to change lives. But we don't change lives. And that was a good... That took a bunch of weight off my shoulders this week. I needed to be reminded of that, that I just am to be faithful and point people to the one that changes lives. And he says, uh, he goes on to say this, and, and I love this so much, because you think, why in the world would God do this? You know, I look at my life and I think about how blasphemous I've been towards God and, and you know, how many you know, evil things I've done in my life. And why will God come die for me? And it says, this is, this is the result of it. This is why he did it. Because he wants to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If that doesn't make you just want to like jump out of your skin with excitement, you mean somebody like me? I'm going to be presented before God Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Blameless, no accusation against you. Holy, completely set apart from all the sin, all the sinful anger in your life, all the perversion, the self-centeredness, the lust, all of these things. You're going to be set apart from all of that stuff and presented to God, holy, perfect, blameless in his sight above reproach. Now, when did God decide to do this? Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, if you have a Bible, please. This is so awesome. I want you to think about this, especially if you struggle with, your, with yourself, you know, and you struggle with, like, this whole, like, I'm not good enough and, and all of this, and how could God love me, and why would God do anything for me, and who am I, and all this stuff. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Before this world was ever created, God chose to have you 
be presented to him holy and blameless in love. That's an amazing truth here today. He's in the business of changing lives and he decided who he was going to do this with like before the foundation of this world. That is a really mind-blowing thought if you have the ears to, to hear that. This life we're born into sin, separated from God and hostile to him, and he comes and he dies in our place to reconcile us. He fixes the relationship. And then when we die one day, rather than continuing down the river to hell that we were on, rather instead we stand before God presented perfect, holy, and blameless and above reproach. What marvelous grace. It is truly amazing grace that God would save a wretch like me. How could this fact change a person's life if this really got into their heart? Number four, our final point, the reconciliation. This reconciliation is what we continue to hope in and share with others. Verse 23, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now this verse gives the people that are proponents for the once saved, always saved doctrine. This gives them a real hard time. Because this sounds like this is conditional. Don't you get that there? Long-standing debate between theologians for thousands of years. Is it once saved, always saved? Or can you lose your salvation? Well, as a pastor... I would never, ever want to give somebody assurance that they are going to heaven if they weren't trusting in Jesus Christ today. I would feel remiss to stand up here before people and try to give somebody some assurance that was leaning on the fact that they were baptized as a child. If they were leaning on that as their basis for salvation or because they said the sinner's prayer one time, I'd feel like a terrible person to try to give that person comfort. You might ask me what my position is on eternal security, and it's like, you know, people will say, what about the verses where it says nothing can pluck you out of his hand? Well, this one right here and a bunch of other ones in the Bible say, if you continue, right? So if you aren't trusting in Jesus today and your life is not reflecting a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ today, I don't think you should have any salvation assurance. Now, I'm not saying that we all don't go up and down and backslide and have problems and things like that. But if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation today, if you don't have a real relationship today, I don't think there's assurance for you in the Bible. I believe you are eternally secure while you are trusting in Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what the Bible teaches. That's my take at it. But there's a 2,000-year-old debate, and I don't pretend to have the right answer to it. And uh, maybe you believe something different. But I will tell you this. If you're not sure that you're saved because your relationship with Jesus Christ is either really non-existent or really terrible, then you need to get that right if you want any kind of assurance of going to heaven. You do that just by coming to him and trusting in him and confessing your sin to him and trusting and giving your life to him and following him. That's how you know that you're in a relationship. I don't trust only in the fact that back in 2015, I was married to my wife here in this church. I invest in the relationship. You know, I don't coast on yesterday's blessing. I just keep investing into it. 
He says, if you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, in other words, you got to keep your feet planted in Christ, his work on the cross, not being moved away, it says, and that's exactly where the Colossians were at. They were in this position of being moved away. They were being enticed by legalism and they were being enticed by the promise of like, you know, ethereal, odd spiritual experiences, which you say people are really drawn to those things today. Yes, they are. And that's why this warning is important for us to stand in the hope of the gospel. And notice it goes on there where it says, don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to you. The hope of the gospel is to be preached and it was preached to them and Paul says, continue in this hope, continue in this good news of Jesus Christ. It's important to understand that in the Bible, the word hope, it isn't a wishful thinking, right? You remember when you were a kid and you're, you know, guys, you're chasing around some girl when you're a teenager and you're like, I hope she likes me, you know, you're like, maybe she will, maybe she won't. That's not what the Bible's definition of hope is. The Bible's definition of hope is a confident expectation that this thing's going to come to pass. Like when I order a package from Amazon, I don't hope it's going to show up at this point. I mean, I trust it's going to show up, right? I don't hope the sun will come up tomorrow. At this point, I trust, you know, and that's the way the word is used, like saying, I hope the sun comes up tomorrow. I trust in it. I know it's going to happen. And that's what Paul's saying to these Colossians. You need to continue in this confident expectation that your faith in Jesus Christ and your relationship with him is going to save you. Don't move from that place of confident expectation, that hope in Christ. And he goes on to say, which was preached to everyone. And uh, he says, which was preached to every creature under heaven. That's hyperbole. It was everywhere in the known Roman world, the gospel had went out, of which Paul became a minister. The word minister there, it doesn't mean like high authority ranking person. It actually means servant. It means somebody that, you know, gets down and like washes feet, right? Now, this also was kind of like his, in this message, is like the last little dig at the, Gnostics, right? Because this went out to every creature, not just to a select few that could have been initiated, uh, you know, into this special knowledge. So as you can see, Christ's supremacy displayed in his work in reconciliation, which the reconciliation was provided by his death on the cross. It was needed because of separation from God. The humans are separated from God by birth because of sin. Reconciliation is the means of our righteous standing. Because of what he did on the cross, God sees me as perfect and righteous and holy. And we must continue in this hope and share it with others. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please, verses 18 through 20, and we'll conclude here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. This is how we're going to apply this message to our lives here today. In the New King James, after I read it in the New King James, I'm going to read it to you in the NLT. And so it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses against them to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. The NLT says this, all this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. There's reconciliation, right? And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. If you are a Christian here today, God has given you very specific directions. He's given all Christians very specific directions. Some of them, you know, we're going to talk more about tonight. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was a command that Jesus gave to his Christians. You say, who's my neighbor? It's like the, literally the people that are right around you. And he said to love them, take action in loving them. Another one that he's given is go make disciples of all nations Right? And this one right here tells us that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we do as Christ's ambassadors. Is like when you, when you talk to your family member that's unsaved, when you talk to your daughter that's unsaved, what you're saying is, I'm pleading with you to be reconciled to God. You're not at peace with God. I'm pleading with you to be reconciled to him, to get right with him through Jesus. He has given us this message, and really that is the main application. You are an ambassador for Christ. I'm an ambassador for Christ, and our mission is to go out and plead with people to be reconciled to God. You who were separated by God by your sin, Jesus has reconciled. You and I have been given the privilege of calling on people to be reconciled to God. What will you do with that privilege?